0: You don't know this, then you're behind the times. The
1: only metric that matters is convenience. Rules apply to you. Suddenly you're an advertiser. this week on social minds actually the longer that you use data and the more historic data that you have the more valuable it becomes
2: we were joined by McVal Osborne our head of data and insights here at social chain to discuss the differences between what you need to know about data and what you should ignore
0: yes a lot gets said about data at the moment that it's a new oil that you've got big data and social first data it can all get quite confusing that's why we sat down with McVal on the back of launching social chain data to find out where we are at both with our consumer data and the way that brands and platforms use it.
2: To celebrate one year of Social Minds, we've also just launched a brand new Facebook group where we'll be talking about the latest episodes and you can also connect with guests that we've had on in the past. To find the group, please just search Social Minds on Facebook, or if you'd rather, we'll be leaving the link in the description of this
1: episode. If you're able to at least be aware of the information that you have collected on you, you can inform how that information is served up to big brands.
2: All this and more, coming up.
0: such a big focus on data, what elements should and shouldn't we
1: care about? Mm. I would say when it comes to data and and social data, which is, I think, what we'll mainly be talking about today, um, the the key pieces of information that are most important to me when I'm looking um, to work with with brands is all around audience understanding and behavior. So uh, we'll be looking at Opinions and preferences when it comes to affinities for certain brands and interest areas. So I think for me, it's um, data is extremely important when you're looking at kind of the the consumer opinions that that drive purchase decisions, but also that drive the um, actions that we take every day. Mm. Because it's so sort of we've got
0: two kind of worlds here, haven't we? We've got social first data and. You know, we say big data and all these other types of data that we hear about daily. Mm. What do do the two sort of marry? What 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 benefits are there now with social first data? Because this is what everybody's talking about, like you said.
1: Yeah. So I think you know, right now there are a lot of um, data warehouses and data data sources that are obviously selling massive lists of data, 15,000 data points per consumer across a whole host of of different topics, whether it's kind of political opinion or um, the types of charities that people invest in, the types of um, shops that they shop um, at from a brick-and-mortar perspective from their day-to-day activities. But I think when it comes to social-first data, we're looking at, um, obviously, people are spending more and more time online. So I think on average right now, people are spending... Up, upwards and over five hours a day on the internet in one, one form or another and on their phones three hours a day or more uh, just in the UK. So the UK population on average spends over three hours a day on their smartphones looking at social media
0: mm-hmm. and
1: just like trying to put that into perspective is, is frightening. And
0: every time they're doing that I assume they are leaving clues as to the sort of person they are, their mm-hmm. affinities, yeah. like you said, what they like That for a lot of people, yes, exactly. (laughs) I mean, that for a lot of people causes some irrational fear. um, And you'll probably hear this a lot. Mm. Should, you know, are there there sort of grounds for these irrational fears?
1: Yeah, I mean, when you think about consumers and um, what they have historically been willing to share with big businesses like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, I mean, people like to... They're social animals and they're social creatures and and we're constantly shouting about ourselves. We're shouting about what we love. We're shouting about what we care about. Um, and we're only now starting to become afraid of the way in which some of these big businesses are using our data. But we're still going to continue talking and we're not going to stop communicating on social. Uh, we We may be more cautious, but we will still be um, experiencing the the ecosystem, the social media ecosystem in the same or similar ways. And so I think that we don't need to be afraid. In fact, I think it's a really exciting time for social media right now because people are starting to become smarter uh, mm-hmm. about how to use the platforms that they engage with on a regular basis. They're getting better at actually sharing information that they want to be shared with businesses. And I think it will only lead to better relationships between brands and and consumers uh, rather than this this I think issue around fear-mongering that's going on mm. where um, we're seeing a big uh, backlash around um, kind of the Cambridge Analytica scandal with with Facebook and the misuse mm. of data um, there will always be bad players that try to take advantage of humans right and and that's that's not different than it was a 1,000 years ago, but it just happens to be that it's much more scalable now. Mm. Um, so good can be done in a much bigger way, but also bad can be done in a much bigger way.
2: What What would you say the difference is then between the data that we willingly give away and we're happy to share with businesses and the data that is being given away but we don't know that we're, we're sharing?
1: I think that's the biggest issue, and that's the biggest, um, I guess, that has the biggest potential for um, concern Obviously, few people—I mean, I'll raise my hand and say I rarely read the terms and conditions on almost any app that I download, and those tick box exercises are just that, a tick box exercise. And it slows you down from wanting this kind of seamless interaction with brands, Mm. right? Brands, um, especially social media networks and apps that are being developed online, they are developed in a way which tries to create the most seamless experience for a consumer. And so they benefit by keeping people on their platforms for the longest time possible. Yeah. And if you read too much into how much your data is going to be used, you will start to worry and you might not spend as much time on the platform. Mm -hmm. So I think that it really um, should be the responsibility of brands to simplify their terms and conditions and to put that front and center in a way that's easily comprehensible. Otherwise, governments will be forced to crack down on some of these monopolies and the the misuse of data. Yeah, But I don't think I really answered your question because you were talking about um, information that we might not be aware of that we're sharing versus yeah. stuff that we kind of freely state online. And there are a few things going on with what's being shared freely online. We know, for instance, um, Mike um, in strategy talks a lot about this movement towards dark social, so um, going towards private Facebook groups and WhatsApp and messaging platforms where Mm. people are talking to one another but through private um, uh, messaging channels where that's not publicly available information. Now, that's really interesting, but brands will have a harder time engaging with consumers in a meaningful way when they go into a private messaging framework unless they are there for the ride. So unless they are taking part in um, WhatsApp broadcast uh, networks Mm. or unless they are actually hosting private Facebook groups more effectively. But still, there's a whole lot of publicly available information that is being posted on Twitter, that is being posted on Instagram, which we can gather. And I think that's really interesting information because... um, people obviously are passionate about certain topics and they want to share that with the world. Mm. So I think that when people are sharing that information, that is par for the course when it comes to how we can... um, how brands can take part in that conversation when yeah. people are sharing.
2: And that's something that we call opinion research, right? Correct. Because I, I don't know about uh, like anyone listening, but for me, when, when we start to have conversations about data, and it's becoming like more mainstream lately, so I think people, including us, are getting a bit more familiar with the terms. But you know, we hear all kinds of terminology, like big data, um, like opinion research, market research, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, can you maybe just outline the differences between those and... Big data, in particular, I'm like, what does that mean? What makes it big? <laughs>
1: yeah, um, you know, I, I think data has so many different connotations, and it's used in and it's it's sort of the the buzzword right now. Everyone's talking about, oh, we need data-driven decisions. We need data-driven insights. We need to to back up our creative content or our marketing decisions with data. And um, big data is seen as this this panacea or this kind of golden key which will unlock every single door. For a business or a brand, um, and at the same time, it's seen as very frightening for consumers that see big data as very much associated with this idea of 1984 and the government watching everything that you do. Mm. And you know, in China, we see kind of the the um, the the gamification of human interaction. In in that they've created this social credit score, which is really interesting. Yeah, I could talk about that for for days, but. But to me, big data is any time that you aggregate a whole lot of information and then make some kind of um, analysis. You, t- you you analyze that that large data set in some way and come up with a recommendation. Mm. That can be looking at the unstructured data of millions of people's opinions about a certain topic when they talk about a certain keyword on social media in their comments or their posts. But that can also be kind of very transactional data of looking at big, big data of all of the, the sales on Amazon or um, general search requests on, on Google when you're looking at Google Trends. But when we talk about opinion research from a social perspective, my background is coming from a very traditional market research background. So we were launching you know, brand surveys, um, customer opinion polls, political polls, doing these kinds of telephone interviews, but also online surveys. But now that we have access to so many different social media analytics tools where we can look at unstructured opinion content um, that isn't necessarily tied to a specific question, we can get very granular level details around audiences and what they care about. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is really, really valuable. And it's separate from but also connected to kind of that more transactional big data, which is, you know, credit card level data, mm. um, location-based data, which I think is a bit scarier. Um, but I think the opinion research area of big data is is what we tend to focus on.
2: Yeah, that's a more friendly side, isn't
0: it? <laughs> yeah. I'd, <laughs> yeah. I'd, like, I'd like to ask on that point as well, McVad. Do you see social first data as kind of being like, you know, the race car that races away from the sort of, pack, you know, the final runner, because because you mentioned, you know, the granularity of it, the, you know, the organic nature of it, the fact that if I were to answer a survey I would probably tell you what you wanted me to hear as a part, as you know, rather than me just sort of rambling on Twitter Yeah, said product.
1: Yeah, so um, have either of you read the book Thinking Fast and Slow?
0: No. I haven't.
1: Da- da- Daniel <laughs> Kahneman, so he, he has this—actually, He actually I think he, he won the Nobel Prize for Economics um, for some of his work that he did on this topic. But he has um, this theory, uh, which he describes as type 1 and type 2 thinking, that, that most people um, have two types of thinking in most of the decisions they make, type 1 and type 2. And type 1 thinking is um, kind of very uh, much unconscious, and it's, it's kind of— um, more along the lines of, of a habit, an unconscious habit that you might form. You, you blurt out an, an opinion about something or you take some action and you're not really aware of why you do that. There are some, some biases um, related to that type of thinking. And then there's type two thinking, which is deliberate thinking, where you actually look at something from a kind of a problem-solving perspective. You actually put some analysis behind it and um, get to kind of a different conclusion right? So um, we will often see when we ask surveys, people are thinking in a type two way. They're thinking very deliberately. They are thinking of how you want me to perceive you Mm -hmm. and vice versa. That sometimes happens on social media because people are still aware of the fact like, how do I want to appear on Instagram or something like that? But it is very much more unconscious. Um, I think the most unconscious type of behavior on online would be um google search trends yeah because no No one is watching you yeah (laughs) well so
2: you think (laughs) yeah
1: you can brain dump your whatever your your deepest darkest secrets are Mm. on a google search bar but um on social media i think it's slightly more unconscious so you're you get a bit more of a ring of truth now i I won't say that it's 100 the truth and i won't say that a survey question is 100% the truth, but mm-hmm. you have to take both into consideration.
2: Yeah, definitely. And cross-referencing, like, different kinds of research as well to help mm-hmm. narrow down, um, like, what the data is saying, I guess. Where
0: yeah. where do the – something we that, that comes up a lot is where do the insights come from this data? Mm. So once you've got all this data set and you've got this and that, how, how do you – what is the process of getting to the true insight that will transform a brand or a product or so on and so forth?
1: Mm. Well, I think it really depends on the on the mission of the brand and the, the key objectives of the brand, because that that would influence the methodology that um, a market researcher would actually or an analyst would would tend to look at the data through, um, and the lens that you choose is completely variant on again that that kind of marketing objective. So, um, for instance, if we were if we were trying to understand. I think one of the best use cases for the type of research that we conduct is how do we make content go viral or how do we make it more engaging for our target audience? And I would maybe, I would would start that research by asking a brand, do you actually really understand the buyer personas within um, your target audience and, and have you segmented them properly? Now, we can do that in a few different ways if they haven't already done that and they, they don't have a, a clear idea of who their target audience is. Mm. And a lot of that comes down to, honestly, to using free tools that they have access to already looking at Facebook audience insights, trying to understand the brand affinities that consumers that like your brand or competitor brands also like when it comes to the types of content that they, they look at, videos, um, television channels whether they're subscribers to Netflix or not. And then when we go beyond that, we can actually go and target those types of individuals on um, social media to understand what they're actually saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can actually scrape co- scrape content and then theme those types of comments. Um, so we can say, you know, when, when people are talking about Netflix, they tend to be maybe from an emotional perspective, quite joyful, or maybe they're feeling sentiments around loneliness, and then you can drill down into that and get a bit more granular. Um, If you're trying to shift people in in a certain direction and develop content from a creative perspective that will really resonate with them, that's when you need to go to an expert that has um, kind of that background in understanding what content will really resonate well after looking at all of the data around the profile of that type of person. Mm. That, that's interesting.
2: That that can be surprising sometimes as well, can't it? Because I know, um, like you've said before, and Amy Miller, who we recently had on, has also said that when you guys are doing sort of these um, like scrapes looking for buyer personas and trying to figure out um, the actual audience of a brand, sometimes they'll think they have their buyer in mind. And actually, once mm. you look into the social data, you can find out that... You have, they have a completely different audience group to what they originally thought.
1: Yeah. No, and I, and I, it's also, sorry, um, to that point, I think it's it's really important to remember that um, audiences that, are, that you may have created for a segmentation, for a, a brick-and-mortar retailer, for instance, uh, may be completely different to the audience segmentation that you create online yeah. and for social media. Now... Obviously, there will undoubtedly be some crossovers because so much of the world is on social media right now, Mm. but there is this this really important element of there are key differences. For instance, on social media, audiences tend to skew slightly younger no matter what brand you're looking at Mm. uh, in terms of the total number of people that would be interested in that brand Mm. and that are actively participating because you will see that even though there might be a lot of people that fit into that older demographic, they're not necessarily as active on social media. Yeah. Um, but I think overall, when you when you understand that an audience segmentation that you may have created in a boardroom, um, after doing a, a very traditional market research survey, might not necessarily align with what's happening on a day by day basis when you look at social media insights.
2: Cool. And when when we talk about like how these insights can inform creative campaigns, this is a debate that springs up quite a lot. It's like, where do you draw the line between trusting the numbers and saying, you know, the data doesn't lie? And on the flip side of that, going with um, your gut, I suppose, and, and your instinct to, mm. to carry out that creative concept.
1: So... Where I sit in in a role around um, focusing on data and and market research, obviously, <laughs> You're biased. Um, I'm, I'm a bit biased. But at the same time, I I I hold intuition in extremely high regard, and yeah. and I think that they're um, obviously being surrounded by creatives every day. I see the um, the analysis that they go through and the process that they go through to come up with these creative insights and creative campaign ideas and strategies for. Um, really transforming brands mm. effectively and I would say that whether or not they would admit it or not they are doing their own data analysis in their head Yeah, and they're doing their own market research in their head a little bit. Intuition is just an aggregation of all of the, the inputs that humans get from mm. all over the place and every piece of content that they've absorbed and so we are really as a, a data and insights team we are just systematizing that and putting it into a process so that individuals that don't necessarily have that level of expertise, that haven't worked in an industry for 10 or 15 years, so that we can identify those opportunities more quickly and more efficiently.
2: Mm. That's a really good way of putting it, I think.
0: And I want to I want to sort of, uh, we spoke about the mechanics of it, but I want to sort of, you know, grill into the ethical side of it. So we've seen a big trend now of a lot of people who are saying, well, we've got stated it says 57% of consumers are willing to share personal data in response for a personalised experience. But then you probably get the other 43% of saying, well, I'm giving away lots of my data siphon siphoning it away every single day. What am I getting in return? Mm. And the answer we know is obviously, well, a free Instagram, a free Facebook, a free so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. What is the, you know, do you think we're going to get to a point where the value will start going both ways and people are more empowered by their data as we've spoken about before?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um... It's a really, really interesting one, and it's something— I've, I've been reading a book called Zucked um, by Roger McNamee, uh, and he was an early investor and advisor to Mark Zuckerberg and so so talks a lot about the early days of Facebook and this kind of discussion around the value that Facebook provides to consumers but the fact that they are ultimately being paid by advertisers, and so what is their incentive mm-hmm. to actually— um, Treat the users, and I and I kind of hate that word, but treat the users ethically. Um, I mean, you you call drug addicts users, right? So it's mm-hmm. we're effectively all addicts to yeah. this this ecosystem mm-hmm. and this platform. And right now, we still haven't gotten to that that point where there is a transition that's going to happen. Where you know, one one alternative to Facebook would be: is there a a subscription model for social media networks that that don't that doesn't collect data in the same way, um, or is is data somehow able to be effectively transferred from platform to platform depending on where the consumer wants to give access um, and and which partners they want to work with? Um, I mean, it's a, it's an extremely important debate, but I think we're not quite there yet, but. For instance, I mean, Facebook has been starting to make moves in the right direction to, I guess, grant the ability for consumers to have their data detached from their personal accounts. Mm. You can see it all now, can't you? You can download it
0: yourself. It's like a catch, and yeah. Sort of, but then the question is, what to do with it after that? It's, it's. Uh, you must, um, you know, even in your profession, do you sometimes recoil in fear how sort of unwittingly people sort of give their data away not to the means we're talking about you know I, I think data is very uh is it can be a good thing in terms of relevant advertising you know mm-hmm. advertising is entertainment branding content it all comes from the same tree but there are definitely other means where it feels like there's a bit of a you know there's there's elements of this that are scary like you say, isn't there
1: yeah you know I for me it's it's challenging because I like to think that people aren't naive. And if you read the news, if you listen to the news, if you watch television more than a, a handful of times a month, you would have seen what's happening with social media. And you would, you would see in the news all of these really important conversations that are going on around privacy and around data sharing. What I think is really ironic is the biggest fiasco around data um, in recent years has been Cambridge Analytica, and it has been freely accessible information that was made available to Facebook and made available to Facebook app partners um, with, effectively with the blessing of every single user. If you recall before that, the biggest data breaches were when credit card data was stolen from Big retailers, and and it was all around the total number of records that had been stolen and potentially compromised, or passwords for for email accounts that had been compromised. Mm. But now the biggest scandal is tied to data that we gave away for free, and we yeah. knowingly gave away. Yeah, almost can be deemed as fraud then, can't it? If you sort mm. of give it away. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. I think that's that was like the problem, wasn't it? The fact that it was freely given away, but if we'd known what the possibility was. Of like what would have happened, maybe people wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's I think it's like just because it was weaponized and used in something like as big as an election. Whereas if someone like because it happens quite a lot, like you mm-hmm. see it mm-hmm. like in headlines. Like I saw one just this morning. They've had another slip up with people's phone mm-hmm. numbers, yeah. which actually after what happened to Jack Dorsey, obviously his Twitter got hacked mm-hmm. because they got access to his phone number. That like yeah. you can see kind of what happens. But the amount of times I've read all email addresses, phone numbers. Um, like released, I I don't feel worried, which is weird. But Mm -hmm. when I see that it can affect politics like that, that's a bit more like closer to home, I guess.
1: Yeah. And that I guess that that brings up a really interesting point around, as we mentioned earlier, big data, right? Because humanity, we are we are stronger as a unit and we can you know start getting into the whole why are governments becoming more nationalist and why are we kind of receding into ourselves? But but humanity is stronger as a whole than we are as individuals. And for me, I have no problem giving away my data because I know that, you know, I, I kind of like having personalized products delivered mm-hmm. to me. Um, I like having content given to me in my newsfeed, which I know I'll be interested in. But I also know that I'm... I will go out and seek out other sources of of information. But for all of those people that, I guess, are also okay with that information but won't go and seek other opinions, it becomes dangerous because using big data, larger organizations can manipulate a mass portion of the population. Mm -hmm. They can manipulate governments. They can manipulate public opinion on a grand scale. And that is, I think, the risk. It's almost it's almost it is almost putting the onus in the individual's court a little bit saying that we have to have principles and we have to be a bit careful with what we share
2: mm. yeah so what what worries me i guess is like speaking from um like the marketer's side of things as as like a consumer when we talk about data being misused in that kind of way i feel like that's the general public's perception of data as a whole. So when the word data is used to apply to things like Cambridge Analytica, and it's also used to apply to the way that, you know, brands are trying to reach you, I feel like there's an immediate response um, from like a consumer, from a user that sees a brand wanting your data to try and target you with advertising, and their mind immediately jumps to the worst. Mm-hmm. And I guess for me, um, it would be like an education piece that needs doing around the difference between when data has been used for good and when it's being used for bad. And I think at the moment people just see the word data and think it's all the same thing.
1: <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. Um, what I would say from from where I sit is as a researcher, I need to maintain that level of evenness in terms of my analysis. Mm. And I can look at the available data. But I think where, where it gets tricky is when you move from analysis and offering recommendations and insights to implementation and targeting Yeah, because obviously Cambridge Analytica wouldn't have been an issue had they not acted on some of these insights. Mm. So I think it takes having that important conversation of we know that consumers think this, what is the correct thing to do?
2: Yeah.
1: Is it we are going to, for instance, with Cambridge Analytica, is it we are going to aim to, um reduce the total number of voters because we have access to those consumers that we know are likely to vote and we know what would cause them to not vote. Mm. Um, it it really I think that's the choke point is where you move from analysis and insights to taking action because technology has also allowed for people to very inexpensively target individuals very effectively and i think it's less the it's less the data and more what you do with it
2: yeah yeah
0: how would you i'm i'm interested to know that McVale, with with all the sort of pr shitstorm that surrounds data at the moment how would you re pr this and and become positive because the line i always use is you know again like i said we we're serving you know relevant content to the relevant people thereby the experience is more relevant and pleasurable yeah but on you know when when you've described all the things you have, that's probably not enough, is it, for people outside of our bubble?
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, so my my very first job out of out of university was testing political advertisements in focus groups, and there are certain words and emotions which will always work with people, uh, and there's and that's and stories especially there that there's there is a reason why there are only seven main story types through all of humanity that get told over and over and over again in different ways. And I think from a a PR perspective, if we were to reframe this, um, this kind of this conversation and this debate around data, I think it really will take some soul searching for really big data companies and social media networks to talk about their purpose and their why. Facebook has such a an amazing why which is connect every single person on earth mm. but you have to think about the costs of connecting every single person on earth mm. and i don't think that they were naive but i do think that the founders of facebook and, and mark zuckerberg tended to frame the world um, in the way that that people that came from from that background would typically frame the world which is um most people want what's best for humanity, yeah. and there are probably fewer um, evil actors out there than we think. Unfortunately, we know that's that's not the case. And when you give a whole lot of power to people that would wish harm a lot upon a whole lot of other people, that will happen if you don't put the right barriers in place. Mm. And so how do you re- re-PR data? Um, I think it has to come down to what is your mission— and how are you seeking to help connect humanity? Mm.
2: We need mm. more stories of it in the hands of the good guys, don't
0: yeah. We? yeah. It makes me think of the sort of, you know, the IBMs and the, the companies like that, with us, you know, who have a very kind of, you know, need to, and Philips is a perfect example, mm. you know, making life better, easier for people, you know, who may be at a disadvantage in yeah. some way, which is interesting. What are Philips doing? It? Um, they've done they've done loads of ads. So there was one ad ages ago. It was like a breathless sort of choir that they did, where they, they made like a piece of medical breathing kind of uh, uh, cool. apparatus that, and you know, a choir was sort of singing. So they do a lot of. I, I suppose you could fit into philanthropic mm. tech in mm, a way. Yeah. Um, and obviously, we've got smart cities and stuff. Because mm. it's true. This is the side we don't speak about, isn't it? It's, it's always the sort of. Uh, the smart this, smart mm. that, smart yeah. cities, smart education, smart this, which is powered by data, mm. which, which I think is a side that definitely gets left in the dark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do um, tend
2: to focus on the negative, but.
0: But I mean, it can't stuff. help when you've got claims like data is the new oil now. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I mean, that's what do you think about one. that
1: when you when when you hear that? Because yeah. uh yeah, that was obviously something that was brought up, <clears throat> brought up a couple times in the um, the Great Hack film on mm-hmm. Netflix, and and I thought it was really interesting. Um, there is a big debate around whether or not that that analogy is actually right, um, and I tend to actually lean towards the side that says that's that's not necessarily correct. Um, obviously, the main argument is that it's an extremely valuable resource, and it's an extremely valuable part of our our global economy now is the the transactions um, and the trade of of data in various forms. But it's not the same for a few reasons and a few really interesting reasons. One, it's a renewable resource. We're only collecting more and more data. And actually, the longer that you use data and the more historic data that you have, the more valuable it becomes. Mm. So it's not something that you burn and then it destroys the world. Um, It's something that is being produced more and more frequently. We're collecting more and more data points and it's becoming more valuable as we develop machine learning systems and artificial intelligence that can make better sense of it. Mm. Unfortunately, it can also be overwhelming to people and I think that that's part of the challenge that we face is there's a, a gap that's getting bigger and bigger between people that understand what's going on with all the data that we have and then people that are probably a bit frightened of it because there's so much of it out there and they don't understand the systems in place that are actually analyzing that data Mm. and the key to the castle effectively is in the hands of two or three percent of the population that really has that knowledge base. Mm. It seems like water more than oil. Yeah. You know, there's the people who study
0: the tidal waves and sort of look at the, you know, can predict when the, you know, the the flooding's going to come and then the people who are just sort of cut adrift. Yeah. Sort of it seems more fluid in, in that it kind of goes into everything because
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting analogy way of man.
0: looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Sort of if we
2: if we're like trying to shine a light then on the more positive uses of data, do you have any favorite examples of say brands that have taken these audience insights and created something really quite like special or in a in a innovative?
1: I guess one one example that I just I love and I think is a a fantastic use of hard data and some, some market analysis that's really leading to a change in the world for the better is Duolingo. So I don't yeah. know if you guys have heard mm, of yeah, Duolingo. Yeah. I'm, I'm exact, familiar yeah. with
2: the terrifying owl.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a cute owl, really.
2: Have <laughs> you noticed know, in the memes where it's like <laughs> the Duolingo owl pops up and it's like at your door. It's like we haven't seen you in a while and then it's like, oh, God, oh, God. Yeah. Very funny.
1: Yeah, but I mean the the background of Duolingo is fantastic. Um, first off, the guy that that founded it is kind of balking the the general tech startup trends in that. I think they're still based in they're based in the East Coast somewhere. It's either Philly or Boston. But um, he's basically said, I'm not gonna move to a headquarters in the Silicon Valley where all these tech startups are because I want to be. Um, creating a um, a startup culture where I am, I don't need to be in this in this filter bubble, which is mm-hmm. something that we talk about a lot on social media in general. Which is, you you are only exposed to things that are in your set of likes or yeah. in your interest groups. And I think that's what happens to a lot of tech companies is mm-hmm. they they find themselves in the filter bubble of the the San Francisco Bay Area, mm. and they don't actually get exposed to outside ideas. They don't see the problems that other people see.
2: Mm, that's interesting.
1: But Duolingo is really interesting because they identified using data this this driver of one of the one of the best ways for people to bring themselves out of poverty in the developing world is to learn English, because mm. it's the international business language, or to learn Chinese now, which is mm. becoming more and more important. So they they identified that as a massive need and something that would actually drastically improve the likelihood of of economic success for millions of people in the developing world. And they've since obviously developed this program, which is rolling is being rolled out to um, individuals on every in every country on earth. But if you I don't know if you remember this, but in a bunch of newspapers and magazines, The biggest competitor to Duolingo used to be Rosetta Stone. It was Mm, basically you get CD-ROMs, you download these CD-ROMs, which are um, obviously software programs that would teach you a certain language. You pay 500 pounds per language for one of these. Yeah. And they've completely upended the market. It's a free service, Mm. but they're obviously monetizing by gathering data and advertising which I think is a positive use of Mm. a free service because at the end of the day, they are helping um, populations that are kind of living on the margins of of the economic world to really lift themselves up. They did research to understand that even though people in the developing world might not be able to own their own home or have a car – Most of them still have smartphones Mm. and they have access to smartphones that would be able to operate an app like this. So they're really kind of creating a platform where people can learn an extremely valuable skill, which is the ability to communicate with one another and share that um, free of charge around the world, which is just I think a really great use of data. That
2: is really positive. Is it naive of me to say that I didn't even know that or realize that Duolingo would be (laughs) taking data? But of course, everyone is these days, so shouldn't be surprised.
1: Yeah, and I mean, they're taking data. It's been a while since I've looked into some of their monetization strategies, but at one point, part of their um, their monetization was effectively translating documents between languages. And so they would actually have basically crowdsourced translation services mm. because it's people that are learning and constantly translating bits of sentences. So it's actually not even monetizing for the creation of advertisements, um, from what I understand. It's actually the monetization of a service, which is translation services. Mm. So it's really interesting.
0: But Val, given, given the years you've, you've uh, you know, the long time you've worked in uh, data analysis in various sort of degrees, what do you see as being the future now beyond social first data or the future of social first data?
1: I am really excited about this idea that we talked about before of, of people taking ownership of their data. Again, I'm not sure what where that is in the grand scheme of things, whether that's next year or in five years' time, but I think that's going to be something that people are going to talk about more and more mm. And how do we control our own data sets and how do we inform our own data sets to be served information that is not only personalized for us but better for us. Because I think that if you're given the ability to – tailor the types of information that you want to see and given given an indication of the types of information that might be most helpful to you, you might be able to imagine if there's an an application or a platform where you are able to ask for nudges on a monthly basis to help you actually fulfill those New Year's resolutions that you never fulfill, Mm -hmm. right? Or to be able to um, put in data which might be extremely personal around... um, What keeps you up at night or the mental health issues that you're facing or your health issues in hopes that you might be able to be served information which would serve you better. Mm. Again, I don't know if that's naive of me to think that that would be a, a good thing. But if you're able to at least be aware of the information that you have collected on you, you can inform how that information is Served up to big brands. Mm.
2: I can see. I can see something like that happening. I don't. Yeah, I agree. I don't know how like soon it will be, or like how far away it will be. Yeah. But I always think there's say there's this um like car analogy. Whenever whenever like a new innovation or something that we're not like used to dealing with comes along, and say if like data. Um, being, like, this accessible uh, and this, like, popular and scalable, as you said, is the same as, like, the car invention. It's also um, like, caused more car accidents, right, which was never a yeah. thing before. But it's helping people drive and it's helping people get places. So, yeah. good good, and the bad. That's my little analogy for the episode.
0: <laughs> there is definitely good and, good and bad. I want to wrap up on a very final note. I mean, on the morning that we're, we're recording this podcast, YouTube have just been fined 170 million Dollars by the FTC for use uh, mining children's data from uh, YouTube and various sources and stuff. Crikey. This is this is post Facebook being <laughs> yeah. fined a record 1.3 billion, billion around yeah. that area mm-hmm. uh, fine. What knock-on effect does that have on you? Considering you know we, we've launched Social Chain data because. All three of us will remember not long ago the API purges where no. suddenly
1: all the things you did on Wednesday,
0: you couldn't no longer do on Thursday.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you bring up a few really interesting things. Um, one, the FTC fine of YouTube, which I just want to comment on because I I think it's almost too... It's, I was talking with, with Katie Leeson about the, the um, Facebook fine and that Facebook fine only really represented about 4% of... Their annual mm. revenue, mm. Um, the 175 million, whatever it is, uh, fine for YouTube. That is a drop in the bucket. Yeah. For the money that they're making, it that is. Person, it? I think the Facebook nothing.
2: one was actually five billion. Was it five? Five, it's billion. Like five billion. Yeah. I was yeah. five billion dollars. So like, yeah, the YouTube one's like a lot smaller than that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And both Google and obviously Google owns YouTube. Google and Facebook are going to be facing a lot of challenges in the coming months when it comes to um, the scrutiny that they're under. But I almost wonder if governments are afraid, especially the United States government, if governments are afraid of harming the relationship that they have with these big brands that they rely on for mm-hmm. a lot and that bring in a whole lot of revenue
2: Yeah,
1: and bring in a whole lot of tax revenue. So. It's a bit of cat and mouse in terms of how much can you regulate these big businesses, um, while still
2: relying on them.
0: Relying on yeah. them. There appears That's to be point. a culture of don't bite the hand that feeds you. Mm-hmm. In yeah. some ways, they say. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Thank you very much, Matt We'll wrap yeah. up there. We'll yeah, leave our you. audience with one to, uh, you know, fester <laughs> over. So uh, yeah. yeah,
1: fantastic. Oh, cool. It's a pleasure. so much
0: fun thank you for listening we really hope you enjoyed this episode
2: if you did please remember to leave us a review on iTunes because it really really helps and allows us to bring you brand new episodes every single week
0: this has been the Social Minds Podcast with myself Theo Watts Eve Young and produced by Ollie Thompson